in the middle of a long section in Romans 14 and moving into chapter 15 today, dealing with um, how we bear with one another, even though we have different convictions and perspectives and opinions. So bear with me as I talk about this again today. In chapter 14, so we've covered chapter 14 over the last couple of Sundays, Paul exhorts the Roman Christians to accept one another's different convictions about matters that are not essential to the gospel. Or in other words, the problem that they had, that they were judging one another over matters that were not about beliefs or behaviors required or prohibited in Scripture. Some who Paul called weak in faith were still holding to the Old Testament food laws that basically prohibited eating certain kinds of meat. And uh, they also still felt an, an obligation to observe the holy days, which God no longer requires since they were fulfilled in Christ. And they were judging those as being compromisers who were okay with eating all kinds of food and who felt no obligation to observe the holy day. So they were judging them and, and not esteeming them as being faithful Christians. Those who knew they were free to in Christ to eat any foods and who didn't feel any obligation to obey the holy days um, felt that the, uh, the weakened faith were, were ridiculous. They, they despised them. And um, they they felt, why do they have this issue of conscience about not being able to be free from the old forms? Christ has fulfilled those. So Paul said that that th these two different groups were to not judge and despise one another over non-essential matters. Rather, the strong were to not cause the weak in faith to stumble in their conscience, thus possibly destroying their faith by flaunting their freedom. So they weren't just in their... Go in your face, hey, we're going to uh, just do this right in front of you whether you care about it or not because it's, it's not an issue that we have. They were not to try to force their, the weak to eat uh, what for them was still felt wrong to eat. In this context, the Jewish Christians ate vegetables only. Not only did they not eat certain kinds of meat, they didn't eat any meat because they felt they couldn't get any kosher meat in Rome. You can't get clean meat. So it was... Uh, an issue for them that was very important. Paul said that no food was unclean, unclean in the religious sense, in the ritual sense, that sinful to eat. You might think that, uh, certain kinds of chocolate are sinful to eat. And you're free to eat all the chocolate you want, so you heard it here. But he said... For the one who thinks it is unclean or sinful to eat certain kinds of food, for him it is unclean or it's wrong. If the one weak in faith did eat, if, it's st if he still doubts he is free to eat those foods, he has been caused to sin because the eating is not from faith. As Paul said in verse 23 of chapter 14, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Even if it's not wrong, it becomes wrong for you. If you think it's sinful and wrong and you go ahead and do it, it's wrong. So that's what Paul's trying to um, stop from happening, is judging one another over those issues that you're free to not eat food, you're free to eat certain kinds of food. It's, it's totally fine either way, but just don't judge one another over that, those issues. So uh, uh, join me as I pray. Father, this is your word. These are your people. Help me to make it clear. Help me to speak truth. 
give us ears to hear and hearts to receive what Christ has for us in this text today. Father, may we come away deeper in faith and love and hope in Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So this brings us up to chapter 15. We'll read the first six verses. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So again, what Paul is saying to the strong, the strong in faith, who, who recognize they had freedom in Christ to not observe the old laws, they were obligated to bear the failings of the weak in faith. They weren't just to put up with them. They weren't just to tolerate them. They were to support and help them in their weaknesses, to fully embrace them, even though they, they had weakness of faith. The strong should not just please themselves, he says. They shouldn't pressure the weak to get over. Just get over your scruples. Just get over it. Just do what I do, and you'll be fine. They they weren't to stop being tell them to stop being so uptight and to have a come just pull up a chair and have a big juicy pulled pork sandwich with bacon on it. The strong should sacrifice for the weak, he says. And so that leads him to say what he says in verse two, is let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. So we are each to please our neighbor, our fellow brother and sister in Christ, um, for, for his or her good. Obviously, Paul's not saying we should please them in every, any old way, just pr- please them in any, any possible way, at any cost. We are not to please them by affirming them in sinful choices, and actually sinful choices, or in compromising the gospel. Paul said in, in the letter to the Galatians, if I, if I did that, if I please people by compromising the gospel, I'm no longer serving God. I'm living to please men. He doesn't mean please in, in that way. What he means is that we should seek to please people in refraining from doing what may lead them to sin and in, in the sense of doing what is good for them, doing what builds them up. We don't please ourselves if in so doing we tear others down. We do what helps others advance in goodness, to be edified and strengthened in faith and godliness. And this is what Paul's been talking about since chapter 13, is is, uh, loving our neighbor, loving one another. He said, oh, no one anything except to love each other. So he's still talking about, this is a big, long example in the Roman church, is how you can love one another by not forcing your views on them that are not essential to the gospel. So when the church would have meals together, the strong would not eat meat in the presence of the weak. They would say, I'll have another veggie burger, please. They do this so they don't cause their brother to stumble. They do this to build them up. So we talked about the past couple of Sundays some examples of that, and uh, one that Greg shared last week was on the issue of alcohol. So that's different culture, different context, different issues, but um, it's a fairly good example 
So there are some Christians who feel it is absolutely wrong to drink any alcoholic beverages. What the scripture is clear on is don't get drunk. Don't get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. So don't don't get intoxicated, but it doesn't absolutely prohibit the drinking of alcoholic beverages. But not, not everybody has that conviction. We have family members who, who feel it's wrong for Christians to drink, so we don't force that issue on them. Um, in fact, some may may come out of backgrounds, alcohol-abusing backgrounds, either themselves or their family members, that who feel that they cannot drink at all because it's just too tied in with past ruin and destruction they've experienced with that. So if you if your drinking would hurt their conscience or cause them to drink, to stumble literally by getting drunk, then you don't do it. So that's that's an example. And uh, the the principle that Paul is getting at here is what doesn't involve beliefs or behaviors required or prohibited in Scripture. We govern the practice of our freedoms based on how it will help or harm others. What doesn't involve beliefs or behaviors required or prohibited in Scripture? We govern the practice of our freedoms based upon how it will help or harm others. And Paul gives the example of Christ, the supreme example, in verse 3. Jesus was the supreme example of one who did not please himself. This doesn't mean he never did anything that he experienced joy and pleasure in. He did, but it means he was willing to sacrifice his comfort and privilege for the good of others. And he quotes from Psalm 69 in that, from the Old Testament. And in Psalm 69 is about a righteous sufferer, David, who has been forsaken by his friends and attacked by his enemies. David is a type of Christ. In other words, he he foreshadows Christ. He he prefigures Christ in, in a lot of ways. And Jesus was a descendant of King David, so David is often used in the New Testament as an example or a, a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. And so in Psalm 69, in his zeal for God's worship and honor, the sufferer forsakes his own pleasures and bears reproach for God's glory. What it says, the whole verse in Psalm 69:9 says, For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. If Christ had just been seeking to please himself, he might have toned down his zeal and say, hey, I'll just cool off, I won't be pushing this issue so much here, and avoided the persecution. Or he might have called upon his angelic secret service team to take down those responsible for the death plot against him. Or he could have used his own power to, to scare the daylights out of them or to destroy them, but he didn't. He, he didn't avoid or attack his enemies. Rather... He kept his zeal for God, and he took the reproaches that were against God upon himself. And since our sins against God insult him, they bring reproach against God. Rather than valuing and honoring him, when Christ died on the cross, he bore our reproaches against God. While at the same time, he was taking God's judgment against us. In other words, Christ sacrificed pleasing himself, upholding his own rights um, to do good for us. So this is what Paul is, is calling the strong in faith to do, is to put your neighbor's good above your, your rights, above your freedoms, above pleasing yourself. And then in verse 4, he, he, he answers this question, in case you doubted that Paul's use of the scripture from the Old Testament, from Psalm 69, 
was appropriate, you need to know that whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction. Yeah, we are, we are to be instructed by what was written before Jesus came. And that instruction was not just to give us knowledge of the Bible trivia. By reading the Old Testament, we see how what was written was fulfilled or exemplified in Christ. And that helps us to endure the endurance and the encouragement of the Scripture. It helps us to endure because we gain, we gain endurance because we see how God is working out his plan of redemption in spite of the human failures that his promises are true, and that his precepts are worth obeying. And this gives us encouragement to trust and obey his word. So Paul exhorts us not to please ourselves, but to please our neighbor, because this is what Christ has done in accomplishing our salvation. And as we see, this is what the Old Testament anticipated. The Old Testament said this is what, this is what the Messiah was going to do. He was going to not please himself. He was going to serve others and sacrifice himself for their good. That helps us to endure the difficulties of obeying this text about not pleasing ourselves, but pleasing others. And it encourages us that it is worth obeying this text, which in turn gives us hope. It gives us hope that doing life God's way is worth it. Which sometimes you may doubt that. Is doing life God's way worth it? It causes you to cry sometimes. It gives us hope that doing life God's way is is worth it in spite of the messiness of church life, the challenges of bearing one another's weaknesses. Have you had a good week of doing that? Putting up with the weaknesses of, of others? Have people enjoyed putting up with your weaknesses this week? Yeah, it's normal. I mean, it's this is this is life. What are areas in your life that you need hope producing endurance and encouragement for? So can Matt recover from his criticism of his new fiance? He's already down for the count. Do you need endurance and encouragement in your marriage? Do you need it in other family squabbles, struggles that are there? Do you need wisdom and endurance for parenting? Or you got that down? How about um, anybody got some work frustrations, frustrations with your job? If you work for Harvest, you're not allowed to to nod on that one. (laughs) Have you been praying about something for months, weeks, or years, and it just doesn't seem like anything's happening? Maybe you have a character weakness. A habitual sin that no matter what you do, you keep falling into. Maybe you're worried about the political state of our country, hey? What Paul says is that the scriptures, even the Old Testament, provide what you need for endurance and encouragement that you might have hope. Man, isn't that what we need in in the challenges we're facing, in the afflictions we're suffering? Endurance and encouragement that produces hope. I was talking to a, a, a guy this week who has struggled to overcome an area of sin in his life. He has made some progress, but he is dismayed at how he keeps falling back into it. Not as bad as he did before, but it just doesn't seem to he just doesn't seem to kick it. 
But rather than just giving up, he is receiving endurance and encouragement from the Scriptures. He just keeps clinging on to Jesus through the Scriptures and the grace that comes from Christ through the Scriptures. And as a result, he, he keeps making progress and hope. And then in verses 5 and 6, in verse 5, Paul talks about, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another. So what makes the endurance and encouragement of the Scripture so potent and able to work in your life is that they come from God. God is so identified with giving endurance and encouragement that Paul calls him the God of endurance and encouragement. But as good as receiving endurance and encouragement from God through the Scriptures is, His purpose in giving these to us is not just for our own spiritual growth and strength, though they certainly do serve that purpose. But Paul, he, he's kind of, it's a prayer exhortation, so he's, he's asking God to do it, but he's talking to them. So we do that sometimes. We pray, but we're really talking to people, but we're, we're asking God, but we're still talking to people at the same time. That's what Paul's doing here. May God do this, but I'm telling you to do it. And so he prays, exhorts, that the God of endurance and encouragement grants us to live in harmony with one another. So that's what he's really after here, to be in agreement. Yes, we are to intentionally make efforts to live in harmony with one another. But it's not a harmony that we can create. It's granted by God. So we must pray that he grants the, the unity that only he can create while we do all we can to, to grow in that unity. Paul isn't praying that they're, they're all going to come to the same opinions, to unanimity on that matter, on all the matters that are differences among them. The harmony he prays for is not necessarily that the weak will realize their convictions about not eating certain foods are unnecessary. That would be fine if they did, but that's not what he's saying must happen for there to be unity. He, he He's praying and he's exhorting that they will be unified by learning to love and accept one another in the context of their differences. So, like, sure, I'll put up with you as long as you see things my way. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, in the midst of your differences, may God grant you harmony. And that harmony, is, he says, is in accord with Christ Jesus. It's certainly Christ's will that we should live in unity together as he prayed to the Father in the disciples' hearing. So Jesus prayed, and the disciples were there listening to him pray this, that his disciples would be one as Jesus and the Father are one. Jesus and the Father are not the same, but they are perfectly one. They're perfectly united. Their unity is the source and, sh and shapes our unity. So we, I think we have John 17, verses 21 to 23 up on the screen. This is what Jesus prays. He's, he's praying to the Father. Father, I pray, I ask that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. So you get the idea that Jesus really wants us to be one. He wants us to be unified. And it comes from the, the very unity of the Father and the Son. 
And it's the way the world will know that the Father sent the Son. In a fragmented culture that has made diversity a buzzword, as our culture keeps disintegrating into warring factions, the church can display what living in harmony in diversity can be. Now, we're way far from being perfect, and we drop the ball in big ways a lot of times. Not particularly harvest, but I'm not saying we have it down to harvest either, but the church in general has not been famous for being unified. But in Christ, we must prayerfully strive to make progress through the God of endurance and encouragement. That we can live in harmony in the midst of diversity is why Paul in verse 4 said that through the endurance and encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope because we are in Christ. We experience a preview of our future hope when Jews and Gentiles, when people from all different nations, all different ethnic groups, and languages will live in perfect unity. That's coming. It's like peace talks will be over. False negotiations will be a thing of the past. We already have a foretaste of that unity, though we do not yet fully experience it. Even when the kingdom of Christ is fully established, we will not all be the same. We will have good God-designed differences, but we will live in perfect harmony. So the natural illustration there is it's a lot more lovely when we sing in harmony than we just all sing the same melody. So having different lines uh, in the song are, is more rich than just one melody line. Even when the kingdom of Christ is fully established, we will not all be the same. As important as living in harmony is, unity is not the ultimate purpose of Paul's teaching in Romans 14 and 15. It's not the ultimate purpose. Even though Paul has devoted so much space to how we are to accept one another and live in, in harmony, it serves a more ultimate purpose. And that's what he says in verses 5 and 6. So in verse 5, as we already read, may God grant you this endurance and encouragement that you live in harmony. Verse 6, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the ultimate purpose for God to grant us to live in harmony together is so that together we may live Together we may, with one voice, glorify God. God is glorified when Jews and Gentiles, people from all the thousands of ethnic groups, and with all of our different perspectives and opinions and convictions and preferences, with all of our diversity, join their voices together in declaring God's glory. Again, our culture is, is crazy about diversity. It's a huge deal. Diversity, diversity, diversity. And, and so they, they say we should celebrate diversity and, and value our differences. Um, God created diversity, so it's a good thing in and of itself. But we are still deeply divided in this culture that keeps talking about we need to celebrate diversity. So what's going on with that? Because our diversity is not centered in glorifying God. Without God, without the desire and the design to glorify God, our diversity degenerates into perversity, power plays, and um, culture wars. So how do we glorify God? 
Well, God's glory is his greatness, his excellence, his supremacy, the radiance of his beauty. It's the weightiness and worth of his being. It's the infinite perfection of his holiness, his goodness, his truthfulness, his faithfulness, his righteousness, his justice and power. God's glory is displayed in his mighty and merciful works of creation, judgment, and redemption. So to glorify God is to exalt him for his greatness, to exalt him for his excellence, for his goodness, for his power, for his holiness, for his mercy, for his faithfulness, for his wisdom, and his mighty saving works. It is to trust and treasure him by our works and by our words. It is to delight ourselves in him and love him above all else. And we glorify him all the more together when we glorify him together. We glorify him all the more when we glorify him together. Oh, that we would be so captivated by the glory of God that we would be so consumed with his glory and so eager to glorify him together, the passion for his glory would consume and order all of our lesser concerns. When you are passionate about something, you are eager to praise and exalt what you are passionate about to others and with others, right? When you're passionate about something, you're, you're eager to, hey, join me in celebrating this. When a group of people are passionate about the Portland Trailblazers, that's a basketball team that's over in a, the city that's across the river. Um, and you come to a game, you go to the Moda Center. They lay aside their differences of being Democrats or Republicans, of being conservatives or liberals, blue-collar or white-collar, vegans or carnivores, black, brown, or white, and they exalt and glorify the trailblazers together. You say, well, most of those things don't have anything to do with uh, issues in glorifying the, tra the trailblazers together. That's the point. What matters is the glory of the trailblazers, not the different concerns and convictions of the fans. God is not glorified when we allow our differing convictions about issues not essential to the gospel to create divisions or to keep us at arm's length from one another. He is glorified when we unite in the truth of the gospel, submitting our different passions and perspectives, our different cultural backgrounds, to the greater cause of glorifying God through Jesus Christ. When we downplay our different convictions and opinions and submit them to the glory of God in Christ. Of course, we can only glorify God together because of what he has done for us through the gospel, through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul is not saying that merely getting a group of people together to sing songs and recite great words about God glorifies him. In fact, a lot of times in, in the prophets, he says, would you cut it out? I'm tired of your worship because they're not really exalting him from, from their hearts. 
So that, that wearies God. You want to wear, wear God out? Give him useless, meaningless worship. We glorify him when we worship and live and serve together for the sake of, of the gospel. And that uh, involves us knowing and loving one another. Yeah. The more we know and love one another, the more we can really worship God and glorify him with one voice. It's not just getting us to, to do it externally. Paul said to the Philippian church in uh, chapter 1, verse 27 of Philippians, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. What, what is life worthy of the gospel of Christ? Um, being holy and, and not sinning, yes, but, but what he says it fundamentally is, is standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. That's what God loves. That's what glorifies God. And we need to know that seeing, trusting, and treasuring and loving the glory of God is a result of God's graciously revealing his glory to us in Jesus Christ. It's, it's like, how, how do I get my heart there if, if, I, if I don't have a place for it? It's a gift of God. And um, that's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God, who said, let light shine out of the darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So I'm going to pray he just does that for us. Join me. Father, by your grace, would you shine the light of who you are into our hearts? to give us the light of the knowledge of your glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Cause us to be so eager to ponder and to talk about and to serve in light of and to pursue knowing more deeply your glory that just becomes our constant pursuit together and that it orders all the things of our lives. Father, all the, all the other priorities in our lives that are many important and good, May, the, may all of our lives be submitted to glorifying you above all else. And so that when we come together, we're, and it comes out of the service of the gospel, being united in, in the good news of, of Jesus, his sacrificial death, in which he did not please himself, but he took our reproaches on himself, his powerful resurrection, so that we might know what is the hope to which you've called us, the riches of your glorious inheritance in the, in the saints and the immeasurable greatness of your power toward us who believe. And through that, Father, we would be consumed and passionate for your glory. And in that, we would, with one unified voice, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We ask in his name. Amen.